Hey, if you're not already turned there, make sure you're opened up to Luke chapter 4, beginning in verse 14, and we'll go all the way to 21, as Tom just read. If you have it on your phone, that counts too. And if you need a Bible, there's a Bible in the seat rack. There should be a Bible in the seat rack right in front of you. We've been spending the last three Sundays uh, sitting on 1 Corinthians 15 as Paul makes this case, this argument, this apologetic for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And even as we've referenced uh, last week on Easter Sunday, what a glorious day that was to celebrate that 1 Corinthians 15 is true, that Jesus really did rise from the dead. He's overcome sin. He's conquered death. In fact, even just a side note on that, I had a friend who came to Easter last Sunday. It was his second time ever in church. And he was so motivated and encouraged by Eric's message on 1 Corinthians 15 that he went home and read the entire letter of 1 Corinthians. Isn't that cool? And so today we're going to now move from 1 Corinthians 15 and we're going to go back to the gospel of Luke. There's four gospels, four accounts of the ministry, the life of Jesus. It's Matthew. I, I like that one. <laughs> Mark. And then Luke and John. The gospel of Luke was written by Luke. We know some background on him that he was a doctor by trade. His intention in writing this gospel was to prove that Jesus is the Messiah. And he goes into details to, to show that to the excellent Theophilus. If you don't know, this is actually volume one of two of Luke's writings. We know that the next volume is the book of Acts. And so maybe like my friend last week, you'll be motivated after today to go ahead and just read both volumes. You could do it this week, the Gospel of Luke, and then move in to Acts as well. And so you've heard this account um, for the first time of, of Jesus Revealed. That's the theme of really the next several Sundays here at Calvary Church as we look at the Galilean ministry of Jesus Christ. Particularly in these few verses, we see that Jesus' mission is revealed. Why he came, his purpose and his goals. We see that just uncovered for really one of the first times. The first three and a half chapters of the Gospel of Luke, we see all these incredible things that are happening. The, the prophecy that the Messiah would be born, the small town of Bethlehem, to a virgin. Then we see even the cousin, the, the forerunner of the Messiah in John the Baptist. And we get to see and, and hear some of his story. Then Luke 2, the birth story of Jesus, the, the incarnation and then in Luke 3, we, we see the temptation of Jesus and how he's tempted beyond really what any of us could bear. But as the God-man, he stays focused on the Father, rebuking the enemy with God's word, and stays faithful and righteous. And then that leads us to this passage right here, the revelation of the mission of Jesus. So I was thinking of, okay, well, this is like Jesus' mission statement. And I started to think through, okay, well, what are some mission statements of some of the big companies that 
that exist here in 2023? Like, how would we compare Jesus's mission statement to the mission statement of, of companies today? And so I just looked up a, a few mission statements of, of companies that you'll know. And maybe you could even guess what they are. The first one is this. This company, their mission statement is to accelerate the world's transition to sustainable energy. I can tell you right now, this is not the Doan kids. <laughs> As they leave every light on in our entire house constantly. Although if you were to ask Marie, I am right there with them. <laughs> so I'm guilty of that. Anybody have an idea of what company here in 2023 this is their mission statement. It is Tesla. That's their mission statement as it goes forward. Here's another one. To be Earth's most customer-centric company. I know you're thinking the DMV. <laughs> it's, not, it's not that. This one would be Amazon. Here's one more. Bring inspiration and innovation to every athlete in the world. I feel like this could be said about Eric Wakeling. Eric, <laughs> triathlon star. He got up two weeks ago. You might not even know this, but, but Eric preached on Palm Sunday the day after running a triathlon in San Diego. It's incredible that, that he was able to just pull that feat off. I am here on the day after Operation Love, all I did yesterday was pull weeds. And I am very concerned that my back's going to give out any second right now. It's not Eric, though. This one is Nike. All right, one, one, one more. To organize the world's information and make it universally accessible and useful. 100 years ago, this would have been your public library. Today, it's the modern library. It's Google. How do these mission statements compare with the mission statement of Jesus Christ? Let me make it even a little bit more personal. What's your mission statement? What is the statement of your life? Why do you exist? What's your goals and the purpose of your life? If I were just to give you 30 seconds and we were to pass the, the microphone, microphone around, what what would you say? What is the mission statement of your life? Well, as followers of Jesus, the glorious Son of God, our mission statement should flow out of the mission statement, his mission statement. And here in this passage, it's revealed. And starts in this little area, north in Israel, Galilee. Go back to verse 14 here of Luke chapter 4. It says, Jesus, it says, then Jesus returned to Galilee. I want to highlight the word then. Might be the first time ever in uh, any message you've heard that you've heard a note on the word then. But there's a lot going on just in that one little word to begin this verse. Then covers about one year. You see, the focus of this passage is in Jesus in a synagogue in his hometown in Nazareth. But before he gets there, he moves all around the Galilean region. For about a year, another gospel explains to us. Gospel of John chapters 1, 2, 3, and 4 describe the then. 
describe that first year of Jesus' ministry as he moves from synagogue to synagogue, village and town in the Galilean region. You can see the map behind me here. If you've never been to Israel, I know maybe it doesn't make a whole lot of difference to you, but just understand that. In the middle of the map is Jerusalem. North of that is this Galilean region. There was about 240 cities, villages in this area. None of them very big. In fact, Jesus' hometown in Nazareth is estimated to be about 400 people living there among the time of Jesus. About the same size as a small town in Northern California called Nord. And if you were here four or five years ago, you might remember that story. It involves a pie and going to Africa for me. <laughs> but you see this region of Galilee. This is where Jesus is, re- is ministering to. And it makes this note in verse 14 that he was filled with the Holy Spirit. He was filled with the Holy Spirit's power. And this filling allowed him to do several things. One, it allowed him to speak with boldness. Every place that Jesus taught and preached, the people in this Galilean region were astonished, the word says. They were amazed. They were pleased. They were challenged. They were, they were motivated. This was the, the filling of the Holy Spirit in the God-man. This also meant that Jesus was able to please the Father, filled with the Spirit in order to obey not man, but to obey God. And then this filling of the Spirit also allowed Jesus to perform supernatural miracles. And in this section of Luke, as we get into the next several Sundays, we're going to read about some of these miracles that, that Jesus performs. Not just so that the crowds would gather. He, he wasn't just some magician in Vegas trying to gather a crowd. But his supernatural miracles, empowered by the Spirit, were done to point to the fact that he was the Messiah. That he had come to seek and to save which was lost. So I just want to make this note here that, that Jesus is filled with the Holy Spirit. And then the reports about him spread quickly. Now, there wasn't newspapers back then. There wasn't an ability just to turn on your TV and, and get the top five of the day. And so this news of Jesus spread person to person, family to family, village to village. This is the ministry of this first year of Jesus, about the age of 30. Then here in verse 15, it says this, that he taught regularly in their synagogues. And was praised by everybody. A little background on the synagogue. From what I've read and what I understand about history. The synagogue developed when the nation of Israel was in captivity. So before that you had the building of the temple. And the temple was the primary place that that God met people. That people went and experienced the presence of God. But when they went into captivity and the temple was destroyed, the synagogue, especially in this Galilean region, was established. In every city and village, they created a little simple, humble space for them to gather as families and neighbors and to worship Yahweh, the one true God. 
Here's even uh, a digging of, of what this, uh, an, an ancient uh, synagogue, what it looks like today. Just a simple space, smaller than, than our space right here. People would sit around the edges in stone, sitting on stone. There'd be kind of a, a front entrance uh, where people would walk in. They would take their seats or, or stand in the back, and then they would look to the front. And in the front, there was typically a liturgy. There would be something that would be done week after week, Sabbath after Sabbath, and it would involve about 10 to 11 men. And so there wasn't just necessarily a pastor or one person. It was actually several members of the community that would come together and would lead this praise time, this this Sabbath worship to Yahweh. They had a prayer leader. They had about seven people that would read from the Old Testament, from the, the Torah. Then they would have a reader of the prophets, which Isaiah being uh, the first recorded Old Testament prophet, and then it would go on from there. Then they would have a translator, because if it was done in Aramaic or even later in Greek, they would have somebody that would translate the scriptures each time. And then finally there would be a teacher who would give a commentary on what had just been read. So this was typically what happened in the synagogue. And our modern church, whether we realize it or not, is based on what would happen here, even in these ancient times. As we pray and, and we read, and then sometimes we'll have a translator and then we'll have a preacher. I read too that on special occasions in this Galilean region, when they had a priest that was present with them, which you wouldn't always have a priest that would be able to show up at your synagogue. Whenever they had a priest, then the priest would give the Arianic blessing at the end of the service time. That number six that, that we get, that we talk about, that, that we receive every Sunday here. That was kind of actually maybe even a rare occasion. That wouldn't happen in a place like Nazareth every week. And so then you go to verse 16. Jesus now enters into the village of Nazareth, which Luke notes in, in all his great details is the boyhood home of Jesus. So 400 people in this town. Everyone would have some experience encounter with Jesus prior to this moment. They would have watched Jesus grow up. They would have gone on family vacations with Jesus' family, mainly being, as we read earlier in Luke, taking the hike all the way from Nazareth and then going down to Jerusalem for Passover. So they would travel with Jesus. They would eat with Jesus. They would often be in the synagogue with Jesus. Now, the synagogue wasn't just for Sabbath worship. The synagogue was also the place where kids would come and they would learn to read and write and they would study the Torah. So this very synagogue most likely is where Jesus learned to read and write. This is like his kindergarten classroom, so to speak. So this is a very familiar place, not only to the people of Nazareth and not only to knowing Jesus, but also to Jesus himself. 
Maybe even Jesus' family had their own seats. Place they would sit every single week. Side note, do you kind of sit in the same seat every week? Maybe you can relate to how Jesus would feel when he walked into the synagogue. This would be like you going on a mission for a couple years, coming back to Calvary and being like, ah, it's good to be home. I'm with people who know me. I'm sitting in a very familiar seat. But we'll read in this account that what happens next is, is very extraordinary, is not something that the people had ever witnessed Jesus doing. Go to verse 17. It says, the scroll of, of Isaiah the prophet was handed to him, and he unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. A little note on that. Although not every synagogue would have a pastor, every synagogue, from what I read, would have somebody that was in charge of the scrolls. This would be somebody that would protect them, would keep them, make sure that they were clean, maybe even prep the scrolls for the readings of that day. Now, it wasn't just easy. You wouldn't just flip your phone and, and go to the passage or, or flip open your Bible. To open a scroll was, was a process. You, you can see here Jesus handed the scroll. It's probably pretty heavy. And then you would unroll it. They didn't have chapters and verses like we have in the convenience of our modern time. And so to find a section here in Isaiah, it probably took a few minutes for Jesus to find this place where, where he was going to read from. Before we get to the next verse, let's, let's read what this scroll said. So go back in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 61. So if you're in Mark 4, leave a little mark there because we'll go back there quickly. But now go to Isaiah 61. It's in the Old Testament. Before Jeremiah. It's after chapter 60. Isaiah 61. I, I'm blessed that we're blessed that we have even ways to get here that are maybe faster with chapters and verses. Although, without that in Jesus' day, I wonder if there was just even a process and enjoyment of opening the scrolls and even reading previously and before you'd get to the part where you're going to read. You didn't have the danger of just isolating a verse. But Isaiah 61, verse 1, are you there? Are you there? Okay, this is what it says. I'm reading from the New Living Translation. It says, The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is upon me, for the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He sent me to comfort the brokenhearted and to proclaim that captives will be released and prisoners will be freed. He has sent me to tell those who mourn that the time of the Lord's favor has come. And with it, the day of God's anger against their enemies. Keep reading, verse 3. To all who mourn in Israel, he will give a crown of beauty for ashes. A joyous blessing instead of mourning. Festive praise instead of despair. In their righteousness, they'll be like great oaks that the Lord has planted for his own glory. They'll rebuild the ancient ruins, repairing cities destroyed long ago. They'll revive them though they have been deserted for many generations. Foreigners will be your servants. They'll feed your flocks and 
plow your fields and tend your vineyards. You'll be called priests of the Lord, ministers of our God. You'll feed on the treasures of the nations and boast in their riches. Instead of shame and dishonor, you'll enjoy a double share of honor. You'll possess a double portion of prosperity in your land, and an everlasting joy will be yours. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrongdoing. I will faithfully reward my people for their suffering and make an everlasting covenant with them. Their descendants will be recognized and honored among the nations. Everyone will realize that they are a people the Lord has blessed. I am overwhelmed with joy in the Lord my God, for he's dressed me with the clothing of salvation and draped me in a robe of righteousness. I am like a bridegroom dressed for his wedding or a bride with her jewels. The sovereign Lord will show his justice to the nations of the world. Everyone will praise him. His righteousness, righteousness will be like a garden in early spring with plants springing up everywhere. Wow. The people that heard this in Isaiah's day were so encouraged by this because the world that they lived in did not reflect Isaiah 61. The nations of the world were surrounding Israel and were threatening them. Not much different than today, is it? The Syrians from the northeast were gaining in power and control. Eventually, even in Isaiah's day, they would overtake the northern kingdom. And then eventually the Babylonians would come and capture all of Israel. The nation of Israel, as we read in Isaiah and other places, due to their, even their own disobedience and, and forgetting about the Lord, they're brought into captivity. They're brought into a place where they never imagined when they received the promised land that they would ever end back up again. But that's their plight. They're in a bad spot. They're away from God. They're the prodigals who have yet retur not returned. And yet, even in the midst of that, Isaiah is giving them hope. He's saying one day, things will be different. One day, the troubles that you have now will be wiped away. One day, there'll be a Messiah who will come and make everything right. That's the message of the book of Isaiah. That's the message of Isaiah 61. Now, Jesus gets up in his hometown synagogue, the place that he'd grown up, the place where people knew him well, and he reads from the scroll, scroll of Isaiah. And particularly, he reads this part of Isaiah, which we know as Isaiah 61. Something's brewing. Something's happening here. Okay, go back to Luke 4. Luke 4, 18. We see Jesus quote from Isaiah 61. When he says this, for the spirit of the Lord is upon me, for he's anointed me. This is a huge word in the scriptures, anointing. We read about the first kings of the nation of Israel, who they had the spirit of God on them, and they were anointed for leadership of God's nation. Here, 
Jesus is reading from Isaiah. The spirit of the Lord is upon me. He's anointed me. You know, the word Christ, Jesus Christ, Christ is not his last name. Christ means the anointed one. And so Jesus is saying that he's anointed me. It says here to bring good news to the poor. Not ordinary news. Not just future news. Not old news. Good news. He's set me apart. The spirit of God's on me. He's anointed me to give good news. And good news to who? To the poor. Now, a lot of scholars have debated this over the years. Is, is the poor like the physically poor? Or is the poor the, those that are just needy spiritually? My answer to that, short, my short answer to that would be yes. <laughs> Jesus in his ministry, as we'll see through the Gospel of Luke, has compassion and particular attention to those who are materially poor. We'll see that throughout. And yet there's also in Isaiah and in Jesus' ministry an understanding that to be truly poor is to not know God, is to not have your dependence on God. And so what the Scripture's saying here in Isaiah and then Jesus quoting it, he's anointing me to bring good news to those who have been depending on themselves and not on God. That word poor also can be translated to mean beggar. So it's not just someone who doesn't have money. It's someone who's, who, who's at the city gates begging, desperate. I'm going to bring good news to the desperate. And then it goes on. It says to proclaim that captives will be released. I didn't highlight it, but that word proclamation, proclaim, I think is important for us to note. Jesus in his earthly ministry had really two big ministries. One was to teach and to preach, and one was to heal and perform miracles, the point that he was the Messiah. Today, in 2023, with Tesla's and Amazon and Google, there's kind of maybe even a threat to the preaching ministry of the local church. It's like, do we really need preaching? We, we have so many resources on our phone. Do we really need to sit for 30 minutes, 38 minutes today, and, and hear some guy talk about the scriptures? My answer, I think, to that is yes. We see Jesus' ministry taking preaching and teaching and proclamation seriously. So as followers of Jesus, we do the same. He proclaims that captives will be released. This word captives has the idea or connotation of prisoner. Prisoners will be released. A prisoner is deemed guilty by a judge or a court. A prisoner then has to go serve a sentence. What the scriptures are saying in Isaiah 61 is that guilty captive, that guilty prisoner who's serving their sentence will one day be released. As I've talked to prisoners, we've done some prison ministry here at Calvary. Every prisoner knows their release date or their anticipated release date. Every prisoner is preparing themselves for that day when they're released from captivity. And 
hear the scripture saying there, there's going to be a day when, when the prisoner is released. And then it goes on to say this, and the blind will see. In Isaiah's day, the nation of Israel sadly was spiritually blind. God had done so much in their midst. He had built a temple for worship. He had invited them to to experience his presence. He had done miraculous things and giving them victory over their enemies. And yet, due to their own stubbornness and sin, they became spiritually blind. 2 Corinthians 4.4 talks about, even in the New Testament, about the idea of that those that don't know God are, are blind to the things of God. But Isaiah 61, and then Jesus preaching here, is saying that one day the blind will what? Will see. Incredible. One more thing here in this passage. The oppressed will have freedom. Those that have had injustice done against them. Those who can honestly say life is not fair. Those who have been squashed down by the man. (laughs) The oppressed will be set free. And even from a spiritual perspective, and we'll read about Jesus' ministry in this, those that have been plagued by spiritual darkness and, and demonic activity will be free. This day is coming. And then it keeps going. Luke chapter 4, verse 19. It says, the time of the Lord's favor has come. That's a, like a hyperlink, if you will, to Leviticus 25. Leviticus 25, God gives Moses and the nation of Israel, the covenant people, this idea that they are to put into practice. That every seven times 70, every seven, seven Sabbaths, every 49 years, in the 50th year, they're to cancel the debts of anyone who owes against another. So in the year it's called Jubilee, all the debts of each person are wiped clean. I think our credit card companies should should practice the year of Jubilee from Leviticus 25. Can you imagine? What if you got home today and you had an email from your credit card company And they're like, dear Matt Doan, welcome to the year of Jubilee. We've just wiped clean your balance. (laughs) Except probably knowing us, we'd just go right back to Target with that, right? (laughs) The debts are canceled. This is what this hyperlink in Isaiah 61 that Jesus is reading is referring to. The year of the Lord's favor. That word favor also can mean acceptance. The year of God's acceptance is here. Okay, that's the passage. Look what happens next. Verse 20 and the beginning of verse 21. Jesus rolls up the scroll from Isaiah 61, he hands it back to the attendant in his hometown synagogue, probably his cousin or his neighbor. And then Jesus sits down. 
I showed you quickly the order of service in the synagogue. You'd have the reading of the Torah. You'd have prayer. You'd have the reading of the Torah. You'd have the reading of the prophets. You'd have somebody then translate it. And then finally, you'd have a teacher. <clears throat> you'd have a preacher to explain what we had just heard. Jesus is the reader here of the prophetic section here. He reads Isaiah. But rather than tag team out to somebody else, Jesus now also becomes the teacher. And that's noted by the fact that he sits down. That's what the teacher would do. He would sit down. Ironically, now when we preach, we stand up. <laughs> but in this era, you would sit down. And it says here that the people were looking at him intently. So I'm imagining this room full of people in the synagogue. They're watching their hometown boy. They've heard about what he's doing in all these 240 cities of, of Galilee. He comes home. They're excited to see him. They know him so well. He gets up. He, he reads Isaiah. He sits down. And now they're all looking at him, going, okay, what, what, what's going to happen next? He, he just read it. Now he's going to be the teacher. What is he going to tell us about this hopeful passage from Isaiah chapter 61? And look what Jesus' message is. It's a lot shorter than mine, thankfully. <laughs> this is his message very simple, to the point, and so powerful. This is it. The scripture you just heard has been fulfilled this very day. <laughs> Isaiah 61 is fulfilled right now in your viewing, people. The guys, my cousins, my neighbors, those that I grew up with, You've been waiting for Messiah. You've been hoping for Messiah. You're looking at him right now. Today, this scripture has been fulfilled. Grace to beggars, forgiveness to criminals, sight to blind, freedom to oppressed. Today, this is being fulfilled. Whoa, whoa. Jesus is the Messiah. And he proclaims his mission to his hometown synagogue on a normal, average Sabbath worship service. Unbelievable. The Messiah is here. Okay, let's go back to your personal mission statement. What is your mission statement? If you're a follower of Jesus... What are you put on earth to do? What's your goal? What's your purpose? It's to, it's to tell people this. I have found where to find grace. I have found where you can get forgiveness. I have found where you can see. I have found true freedom. Whatever role God has you in, whatever vocation he has you in, whatever season of life, you may be a widow, you may be a teenager, 
You may be a C-suite executive. You may be a blue-collar worker. You may be all of those things at once, but this is your ultimate purpose. This is our mission statement. As we follow Jesus and his mission, we point people towards the mission. Amen? Amen. Amen. So we're going to continue in worship through music. But I want to invite us to respond to this passage in a, in a couple different ways. One is maybe you've never come to Jesus. You've never acknowledged that he is the Messiah, that he is the one that can set you free. Let the week after Easter be the day that this happens. I encourage you, we're going to have leaders at our prayer areas. Maybe someone brought you today. You could even invite them to pray with you. But I challenge, encourage you, invite Jesus to be the Savior, the leader, the Lord of your life today. Free you from sin. Free you from eternal punishment in hell. Give you hope in heaven. Second response. Maybe you're struggling with the mission of your life. You're a little disoriented right now. You've lost a little bit of the story. Your purpose feels kind of wandering. I'd even encourage you to seek prayer today from a, a fellow believer and go, help me to remember my mission. God, show me tangible ways you want me to live out this mission, even this week. And then one more option. If you would like to receive prayer, even for something physical, Jesus here is hitting on the spiritual, but maybe there's a physical need that you have of healing from illness, of, of broken uh, addiction that you just need to be broken from. I encourage you to seek prayer today to let the ultimate freer free you. And so let's pray. If you just close your eyes, even put your hands out in, in a moment of just humility. And let's go before the Lord. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, we thank you for Isaiah chapter 61. Thank you for the hope that that gave the nation of Israel. Thank you for the hope that it gives us. And God, we just thank you that you, Jesus, fulfilled Isaiah 61 in your life, your death, and your resurrection. God, thank you for this mission God, thank you now for entrusting the church, your people, to carry out this mission. God, give us clarity where there's confusion. Give us passion where there's apathy. In the name of Christ, amen.